Good morning, everybody. It's good to be back with you. Had a little bit of a vacation this past week. Just needed to switch up the pace. We had uh, we had some work going on in the church for the last several months, and after a little bit of that, I just I needed to to breathe a little bit. And it was, you know, some stress, and I knew the stress was starting to get to me at one point when there was one night about 2 a.m., I woke up from a dead sleep, and I said, the Ethernet cables, what are we going to do about the Ethernet cables? We had some cables running through the ceiling that needed to be moved so our office could function while a wall came down. And so I I just tossed and I turned for like an hour and a half in my bed just trying to figure out what are we going to do about these cables and how are we going to move them? And you know, that's when you may come up with the best ideas is like 2.30 in the morning. And eventually it was like 4 a.m. and I said, you know what, I'm not going back to bed. Let's just get up and start the day. Uh, And so I did. And it was a really, really long day. And I wish I could say that was an isolated incident, but there were a lot of those days where you just, you know, anxiety kind of got the best of me. And it's easy to worry and be anxious about things like that. And even if you've never done a renovation project at your home or office, you probably can still resonate with that idea, that experience of waking up in the middle of the night and tossing and turning in your bed, stewing and thinking about what about this and what about that. Worry comes pretty naturally to most people. And sometimes we worry about projects. Sometimes it's schedules we might worry about. How am I going to get all of this stuff done? Maybe it's money that we worry about or that makes us anxious and we toss and we turn thinking, I'm going to pay for this and pay for that and so on. Could be relationships. Maybe there's a relationship that's on the rocks or maybe there's a conversation that we need to have and that we have to have but that we really, really don't want to have with somebody. Could be any number of things. Could be life change, big life changes, little life changes. We all become worrisome and anxious about things in life. Like I said, it comes pretty naturally to most of us, which makes some of the things that Jesus says a little problematic. Because he goes and he says things like this in the book of Matthew chapter 20, or Matthew chapter 6, rather, verse 25. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat or drink about your body and what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Don't worry about your life. You know, just stop. That little switch that we all have in our brains that we just flip and turn it off, just do that, Jesus says. Stop worrying so much. But as we all know, it's not that easy. He makes it sound so simple, and yet worry, as we said, oftentimes fills our lives for numerous different things, for numerous different reasons, and it's hard to stop. And yet, if we're going to take Jesus seriously, and we're going to try to follow his teachings and his commands, it kind of necessitates that we get a handle on this thing called worry and anxiety in life, not just for the sake of faithfulness, but maybe for our own benefits as well. So that's what we're going to wrestle with this morning, that question, how do I find peace amidst the worries and the anxieties of life? There's got to be a way. I don't think Jesus would command something if he didn't know there was a way to actually do it. And so to answer that question, we're going to be putting a game plan together this morning based out of the rest of what Jesus has to say in Matthew chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles with you, why don't you open those up? You can follow along in Matthew chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, you can follow along on the screen behind, or you can download the FCC Mammoth app to your mobile device, tap the Sunday button in the bottom right-hand corner, and you'll find our sermon notes along with our passage pulled open, ready for you to engage with, take some notes on, and get the most out of our time together. I'll tell you what, why don't we bring the lights up just a little bit so people can read their Bibles. 
It's a little dark in here, I know. We apologize. So this question, how do we find peace amidst the worries and the anxieties of life? As we read through what Jesus has to say in this little section of the Sermon on the Mount, we kind of start to realize a lot of this is mindset stuff. There, there are some shifts in perspective that we need to incorporate into our lives. And so what we're going to go over is just kind of a, a simple game plan. I'm not saying it's an easy game plan, but a simple game plan for how we can kind of make those shifts and search out that peace. And it starts with ourselves. Don't forget who you are. Don't forget who you really are. Sometimes it's easy to do that. And I know that's a rather pregnant phrase. There's a lot that goes into who we are. So let's look at what Jesus has to say. Let's start to unpack that and what he has to reveal about the real nature of who we are. This is Matthew chapter 6, verse 26. It says, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or stow away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Jesus says, look at the birds. Consider the birds. Birds are not lazy creatures. They get up, they go to work, they build nests. Sometimes they're rather industrious little creatures. There's a species of crow in Japan that has gotten so used to watching the traffic patterns on highways that they'll drop nuts on the road and let cars run over them to crack them open, and then they'll just swoop in and pick up all the little tasty bits. It's pretty smart. Birds are not lazy. They work. And we even acknowledge that in our own culture. We have a saying, the early bird gets the worm. We recognize birds don't lounge around lazily until noon. They get up. They, they go. They get done what they have to before the sun rises. Oftentimes sitting outside our bedroom window, cheap chirping and waking us up before our alarm clock, right? We love birds for that reason. Birds work. But for all of their work and all their ingenuity, birds are not particularly concerned or worried about the future. I mean, they, they, as Jesus points out, they don't plant fields, they don't harvest big yields of crops and then store them up in barns and storehouses to fend off and hedge against whatever the future may hold. They just take each day as it comes, and yet God provides for them. When was the last time you saw a bird withering away, starving by the side of the road? There's continual supply. There's provision here. So Jesus here, he's not suggesting that you and I, we, we just sort of become lazy or fly by the seat of our pants and say, well, we'll just worry about today and tomorrow. That's not a big deal. That kind of flies in the face of the rest of what the Bible has to say about wisdom and preparation. We can go through the, the book of wisdom itself, Proverbs. When we think of Proverbs, many times we think of those like short, pithy, little two-line sentences. Those don't actually start until chapter 10. But when we do finally get there, it only takes five verses before it starts encouraging us to be wise and diligent and prepared for the future. Proverbs chapter 10, verse 5, it says, He who gathers crops in summer is a prudent son, but he who sleeps during harvest is a disgraceful son. So what makes one son prudent and one son disgraceful? It's really the fact that winter is coming. There's a time period here in summer, and, and one son, he is diligent, and he works, and he prepares for what is inevitably up ahead. He's a, a prudent and beneficial son. The other son, he's lazy. He sits around. He, he doesn't use his time adequately to prepare for what is inevitably on the horizon, and so his whole family has difficulty. Be prepared. Be wise. Scripture is very clear on that point. So Jesus isn't saying, just fly by the seat of your pants. Rather, with this little illustration of the birds... He's pointing out two really significant truths about who you and I are, just kind of the nature of what it means to be human. And the first has to do with our limitations. 
We like to pretend like we are really in charge of our lives, that we're in control of our destinies, that it's all within our ability to mold and form and sculpt. And so we work hard and we stew and we worry and we put all of our energies into preparing or hedging against the future and what might be because it's comforting. The reality is there is so much in our lives that is beyond our ability to control, much like these little birds. And Jesus even points it out a little more directly. He says, who by worrying with this anxiety can add even a single hour to their lives? All of that worry and that anxiety and that stewing amounts to nothing. We're very limited creatures. We were reminded of that a few weeks ago, early April. There's a big storm front that blew through. And in these parts, we had a lot of winds and things. There was a little damage. Uh, our playground was an unfortunate casualty of that storm. In my hometown, I was there this past weekend, a tornado actually touched down. It went through the southern part of where I grew up. And when I went home to see my folks, I made a point to drive through that so I could see the damage. And I remembered when that Casey's was, was being built, but now the front of it's been torn off. And I drove by, and I remembered when some storage units were being built, and those are wiped off the map. And these houses that I'd driven by hundreds of times growing up, the roofs were torn off. And these were all people who got up that morning and went to work. Some of them went to doctor's appointments. Some of them did some chores around the house to maintain their homes. Some of them stocked their pantries. Some of them were doing other things, all things that under normal circumstances would have made for a stable present and a prepared future. But then a storm came in and all of those efforts and all of that present and that future just got blown away. And what do you do about something like that? Because you can't stop a storm. And you can't just pick your house up and move it someplace else. There's so much that is out of our control and our ability to manipulate and influence. We can't control the weather any more than we can control the economy. Any more than we can control what other people do and how those actions impact our lives. There's so much that is out of our control. We're very limited. And all of our worry and all of our stewing and all of our anxiety makes no difference whatsoever. And you're saying, wow, I'm really glad on this cold and dreary day that I came to listen to a message about how limited and helpless I am. Thank you, preacher. I feel uplifted. That's not the end of the story. There's a whole lot more to say about this, but we are going to put a pin in this for right now because I don't want to miss what else this little illustration of the birds has to point out. We are very limited, but we're also very loved. As Jesus points out, those birds who are rather insignificant are still cared for by God. He still provides for them. And he asked, are you not much more valuable than these? There's an assumption here that people have a special significance attached to them. And it's an assumption that is carried over into this next little illustration about some flowers. If you want to keep reading with me in verse 28, it says, And why do you worry about clothes? You see the flowers of the field grow, or how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin, and yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? He points to some flowers. People are capable of making some pretty beautiful things. And I know beauty is subjective and it's in the eye of the beholder and all that. But even if it's not your cup of tea, we can usually look at something and acknowledge there is some beautiful qualities about that. Jesus uses an illustration from his own day, this robe of King Solomon. 
And we don't actually have any references to what those looked like in the Old Testament, but we can assume that they were at least as regal as uh, competing nations, and so they would have been made of fine fabrics, probably ornate embroidery, rather colorful, just kind of expensive-looking robes. I thought maybe the point would be made a little clearer if we use some examples of beauty from our own day. So I've got a picture up here of just a few examples. We've got over here, rather, let me turn this way, over here, uh, a painting, rather famous painting of, of Starry Night by Vincent van Gogh. It's regarded by many to be a world-famous, irreplaceable, priceless work of art, rather beautiful, considered by many. In the middle, we've got this really ornate dress. I don't know if you can see the color, but there's a nice little gradient from blue down to orange. It's got some black embroidery on it. It's a, a rather beautiful dress. Over here, we've got smoked pork butt right out there, slathered in barbecue sauce, which objectively is a beautiful thing, if I do say so myself. Uh, different examples. You know, I think somebody can find something beautiful in all of these. And all of these took skill. They took time, they took effort, they took resources. There's a lot of labor put into creating these beautiful things. I've got one more picture to show you. Uh, these are two different fields, one on top, one on bottom, both of them fields in Israel, uh, filled with wildflowers, very similar to the kinds that Jesus was referencing here. And that's not too bad either, is it? In fact, there are qualities that some of us might look at and find even more beautiful than those man-made works of art. And here's the thing, those fields, they didn't labor, they didn't spin, they didn't put forth an immense amount of time or skill or effort. Those flowers just grew because that's how God designed things. And how inconsequential are those fields and those grasses? They don't have a lot of value to them. In fact, Jesus touches on this, when things got a little drier, people would go out to fields just like this and they would say, oh, look at this beautiful flower. And they'd grab hands of it, handfuls of it, and throw it in their ovens so that they could bake their bread. It really wasn't anything special or unique. And yet, despite its rather uh, uh, mundane existence, and despite the fact that it doesn't work hard at all, God clothes it with beautiful wildflowers as if it does matter, and it is special. And then Jesus turns and asks the question, how much more valuable are you than these? It's that same assumption that he asked about the birds. People have a lot of value in the eyes of God. It's not birds that he made in his own image. We read in Genesis chapter 1, that's, that's you and me, uniquely in all of the universe, bear the image of God. That's a privilege we carry. And it's not the grass of the field that God made just a little lower than the angels. We read in Psalm 8, once again, that's you and me. That is a special honor and place that we hold in this universe that God made. There is an incredible value that we carry simply because we are human beings. And God is the one who bestowed that value upon us. So yes, we are we're very limited creatures, but we're also very loved creatures. And that's really, really important when we consider phase two of this plan for finding peace amidst the worries and the anxieties of our life. It's important to remember who we are. It's also important that we don't forget who God is. That's the second component to all of this. Don't forget who God is. He's the one who feeds the birds of the air. He's the one who clothes the, lily, the grass of the field with lilies. And the assumption is he is the one who also provides and cares for us. 
That great provider values us immensely, despite the fact that we're rather limited creatures. He loves to provide for his people, and it's easy for us to forget that, to forget who he really is. Because we look at what we can do, and we work, and we labor, and we toil, and we do create some things. And it's so tempting to look at all the stuff in our life and go, look at what we've accomplished. It's a very similar temptation that God saw in the ancient Israelites. When they were about to cross over the Jordan River and go into the promised land, God warns them. He says, you're about to go into this land and take cities that you did not build and live in homes that you did not construct and harvest from vineyards and olive groves and orchards you did not plant. And on that day, there will be a temptation. He says this, verse, or chapter 8, verse 17 of Deuteronomy. He says, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God. For it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. The temptation for humanity is always for us to look at the things that fill our lives and say, look at what I have done, I have done, and I have produced. Forgetting that even for all of our work and all of our effort, God is the one who gives us the ability and the opportunity to make those things. Just as a little illustration, I want to play a game with you. We're going to raise our hands. Okay, everybody, you can stretch. I just want to make sure everybody can do that this morning. Okay, it is possible. We are awake, so we've proved it. So here's, here's question number one. I want you to raise your hand if when you were a twinkle in your daddy's eye, you said, I want to be born in the United States. How many of you made that decision? Now, I know the hands work, but I don't see any. Hmm. Well, what about this? When, when you were like in the stars or wherever you're at before you're born, how many of us decided that we wanted to be born in the 21st century where medical science had advanced to the point that we have the highest quality of life and the longest life expectancy in human history? How many of us made that decision, huh? Big old goose egg. Okay. One more. When you were in utero... Growing and developing, and your brain first started to pulse with ideas. How many of you decided, I want to be good at this, or I want to be skilled at this, or I want to have these relationships and opportunities given to me so that I can succeed in life? Who made that decision? Eh? You know, it's funny. I preached this sermon last week, and I got the same response. Nobody raised their hands. And that's because none of us make those decisions. That's not on us. We don't produce that. We have been given a context. We live in a country with freedoms out the wazoo where we have unlimited potential to succeed and to produce. We have been given this time period in which our lives are the healthiest and longest that they've ever been in the history of humanity, and we've been given skill, and we've been given relationships, and we've been given opportunities that we have not created ourselves. If we wanted to sum that up, we might just steal from Deuteronomy 8. God has given us the ability to produce wealth, the ability to produce and succeed and create the life that we have. He has filled our lives, not just with what we lack, but also with what we already possess because he is the great provider. That's who he is. There's a joke my old preacher growing up used to tell, and I've shared it, but I get a lot of mileage out of this joke. There's a group of scientists, they created this machine that was capable of turning dirt into life. And they were so proud of themselves, they started saying all kinds of remarkable things like, we don't need God anymore. 
And God found this rather humorous, given the circumstances. And so he challenged the scientist. He said, let's have a competition. You take your machine and you make life your way. And then I'll make life my way. We'll compare. And whoever has the most impressive creature, they win the competition. And the scientists thought this was a great idea. So they started scooping up handfuls of dirt into their machine. And that's about the point where God said, whoa, 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 whoa. You guys don't need me anymore, do you? And they said, well, no, look at what we can do. And God said, okay, that's great. You have to use your own dirt then. God not only provides what we lack, but he is also the provider of what we already possess because he is the great provider and the great sustainer. He fills our lives and he calls to us as limited creatures to rely on him, to call upon him, to trust him, to be who he is, to be that great provider. That's why it's okay to be so limited. Earlier we said, let's put a pin in that idea. Let's take that pin out. We are very limited. There's a lot we can't do and a lot we can't control, but there is a God who can. And there's a whole lot he can do and a whole lot he can control. And he invites us to call upon him and invites us to trust him and invites us to rely upon him. That's our place in the universe, to trust in the the God who provides and sustains all things. That's the heart of the gospel message, by the way, because it's not like we're limited in our ability just to produce our needs here and now. We're limited in our ability to produce things like righteousness, We're limited in our ability to earn things like eternity. There isn't any one of us in here who is sufficient enough to stand before God holy and whole and justified on our own by our own works and our own efforts. Because given the opportunity, every single one of us would and has chosen sin. And maybe we chose it through greed. Maybe we chose it through callousness. Maybe we chose it through heart, uh, heartlessness or maybe we chose it through yelling at a guy who cut us off on the highway one day. Maybe we just woke up and it was cold and we cussed under our breath because it was just so dang cold outside. There's countless ways that we have chosen rebellion against God and his goodness, but all of us have done it. And all of us are in desperate need of something we cannot control or provide. And in this too, God is pleased to meet our needs. He provided atonement for our sins through the son that he provided as a sacrifice that we might have eternal life that he provides through this message that we call the gospel, the good news that Jesus has died on the cross so that our sins could be wiped away and we could stand before God innocent and we could stand before him with righteousness, not because we've earned it or produced it, but because Jesus has. And as human beings, we have chosen our rightful place to rely and trust on him fully. That's the gospel. That's the nature of who we are. He is the God who provides all things. And that can be really uncomfortable to rely on him so fully. And it would be a really hard pill to swallow if he were a different kind of God. And Jesus touches on that too, believe it or not. We keep reading what he says in the sermon in verse 31. He says, Do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. He mentions pagans here. Back in the first century, a lot of people worshipped pagan gods, like Zeus and Jupiter and Artemis and all these other deities. 
And these pagan gods were almost always capricious, fickle, kind of like switching their mind up back and forth. It produced a lot of anxiety within people because you never knew if your God was going to be in the right mood to provide what you needed. And as I was writing this message, I could not help but think of my three-year-old son, Ben. He reminds me a lot of a pagan deity. Even this morning, Ben, what do you want for breakfast? I want cereal. Okay. I get him some cereal, takes three bites. I don't want cereal. Okay. What do you want? I want a banana. Okay. Peel the banana. I don't want a banana. Ben? I want toast. Okay. I'm making some toast. I don't want it. Ben, just eat the toast, man. Like, it's yes and no. Changing my mind constantly back and forth. He's fickle. And so are these pagan gods. They always changed their mind. They were fickle back and forth. You never knew what kind of a mood they were going to be in. You never knew if they were going to be in the right mood to meet your needs, to supply what you lacked, to hear your prayers. And it produced a lot of worry in pagan people. Worry is what we are resigned to when we're following a false god. And that's still true today. And it's not like we pray to Jupiter or Zeus or Artemis or any of those. Sometimes we go looking for our God in a temple on Wall Street. Sometimes we go looking for a God in an Oval Office. Sometimes the God that we're really following is the one that looks back at us in the bathroom mirror every morning. And I call these gods not because they're all powerful, but because we treat them like they are. Like these are the forces they're going to provide for us. These are the forces that are going to sustain our lives. These are the, the forces that I need to make sure are in the right mood and I need to follow and put my trust in because ultimately they decide my fate and my future when in reality they are just as impotent as the gods of old. And following them will resign us to the same worry and the same anxiety that the pagans of old suffered. That's not who our God is. There's only one God who feeds the bird of the air, who clothes the grass of the field. There's only one God who provides for our needs, both of the flesh and the spirit, both of this life and the next. He is the great provider, and he loves us. He is happy to provide for us. He invites us to rely upon him for all things, both this life and the next. That's just who he is, and we cannot afford to forget that. So we've got these two kind of perspective shifts, this little game plan. Remember who we are. We are limited. There's a lot we can't control, and worry doesn't change that, but we are very much loved by the God who is in control and who loves to provide. And when we have these two truths in our hands, there's really only one logical path forward if we want to find peace, even amidst the worries and the anxieties of life. Peace is found when we find ourselves increasingly in sync with God. When our lives become more and more in tune with him and who he is, that's when we find peace. Jesus says it a little more eloquently towards the end of this little section. He says in verse 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself each day has enough trouble of its own. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Those are two very full concepts. And that's a sermon for a whole other day. But the short of it is this. When your life is in tune with God, when your, your character, our conduct, when our relationships, when our priorities, when we are in sync with who he is, 
all of this life stuff that we worry about, all these needs that we stew over and are anxious about, they kind of just come along in tow. And it's tempting to hear that and and say, well, that's some nice pie-in-the-sky thinking. Just follow God faithfully, and all these things will will just kind of show up. But yeah, actually. And it actually kind of makes sense when you think about it. If God is the great provider, why wouldn't he be pleased to provide? That's who he is. If my life is taking Jesus seriously, both his challenges and his teachings, why wouldn't God take the challenges of my life just as seriously? That's who he is. If I'm taking the ethics of his kingdom seriously, things like generosity and charity and graciousness, why wouldn't he apply the ethics of his kingdom to my life? Things like generosity and charity and graciousness. You see, when we start to follow God more fully in our lives and we really are bringing ourselves in congruency with him, all the things that we worry about in in this life, all this anxiety, it kind of resolves itself because the great provider is pleased to continue being who he is and he provides for his limited but very loved creatures. After all, you do kind of want to take care of the people you care about, don't you? There's a joy in that. You go and you buy an animal, like a little dog or a puppy or a kitty. You don't just throw it outside and say, well, they'll figure it out or die. You'll go to jail if you do that. I know some people that probably personally escort you to jail for that. No, we take care of those things. We cherish them. We feed them. We water them. Or a child. You bring a child home. You don't just say, all right, the street's out there. Figure it out. You bend over backwards to provide for what they need. You sacrifice, you give of yourself, and you do it willingly and with love because we care about these people, and we love to take care of the people we care about. With this lobby project, we had a few snags along the way, and probably the most frustrating, uh, there was a miscommunication with the flooring company, uh, and long story short, we had to tear out about 700 square feet of, of ceramic tile rather quickly. Uh, And we knew we were going to do it. We knew how it was going to get done. We just weren't looking forward to it because it was just going to be kind of Alec and I and whoever else was willing to help out. And I was telling my small group about this one night, just saying, hey, could you pray for me? I'm a little stressed. And some of them stepped up and said, you know what? We're going to come and help you tear this out. We're even going to take the day off and use a vacation day to come tear this out. And they didn't do that because I asked them to or because they just love tearing up tile and getting bloody and sweaty and stuff. They did that because they care about me and they didn't want me to lose my ever-loving mind trying to get that lobby done, right? You take care of the people you care about. And God cares about us immensely. Why would he not take care of us? That's who he is. We are limited, but we are loved by the one who is not limited at all. So if we're looking for peace in this life, it's not found by trying to control everything. In fact, I would encourage you, if you let me speak into your life for a minute, stop trying to control everything and stop living under this illusion that we are all sufficient and embrace the fact that we are limited, that much of this life is out of our hands and out of our control. But at the same time, embrace the fact that God is very much in charge, that because he cares, he ensures that my seeking his kingdom and his righteousness will produce all these things I need as well. And when we find ourselves following that God more faithfully, more fully, don't be surprised if you find peace in your life. 
a peace that transcends even the worries and the anxieties that so often plague our days. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for your consistency and your character. You are a great provider, and you sustain us. You're the one that supplies breath in our lungs. You give us energy, both to do our jobs and to raise our families. You've provided our material uh, things. You provide for our material needs. And more amazingly, you've provided our spiritual needs in your son. And in our insufficiency and limitations as fallen people, you've provided a way forward. And you have provided grace that sustains us day by day. And you have provided a sacrifice in him that has washed us clean. And in every single way, you have proved yourself sufficient and able to care for us. So let us trust you with a deepened faith. Let us seek you with a life that is hungry to live in consistency with you and to taste the peace that comes through the name of Jesus and this life and the life to come. We pray these things in his name. Amen. As we enter into a time of communion, I want to reflect on God's generosity a little bit more. He is the great provider. And as we said, he has provided all things, even atonement for our sins. And Paul touches on that in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 32. He says, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? And the idea is, is this. God has withheld nothing from us. He has given us his most precious possession, his son, he has given him the treasure and the apple of his eye, Jesus, and sacrificed him willingly for us. That's the value that we have in his eyes. And if he's willing to give us something so special and so sacred, why would he withhold our daily bread? Why would he withhold something so trivial if he's willing to lavish his riches on us so powerfully in Christ? That's the idea there. He is the great provider. And as we gather around the communion table this morning, I want to reflect on that, that aspect that God in his generosity supplied even Jesus. He has withheld nothing from us. What privileged people we are to know that there's a God who cares so immensely about us. And as we gather around the table and we partake of the elements, I want to reflect on that sacrifice with that cup that represents the blood of Jesus Underneath, there's a second cup that holds a wafer, the body of Jesus broken for us. Together, these tell the story of God's incredible love, of his mercy, of his compassion, of his generosity, of our value. The gospel defines us. It tells us who we really are. And as we celebrate what Jesus has done for us, give praise to God for all of this for the value he bestows, for the sacrifice he made, for the love that we are lavished with, for the provision that he has given. And say thank you this morning as you partake of this meal. Let's pray. Father, we thank you once again for Christ Jesus, for the gift of salvation that comes through him and only through him. We thank you for the peace that comes through him. We thank you for the righteousness that comes through him, the changed life that comes through him the new identity that comes through him. We thank you for the incredible, incomprehensible love that you have for us demonstrated in the sacrifice of your son. And as we partake of these emblems, we pray that they would remind us and renew us and refresh us in our spirit. 
that we might recommit ourselves to seek you more fully, to give you thanks, to give you praise, and to live out the grace that you have given us, showing it to others and demonstrating your goodness to this world. It's in the name of Jesus we pray these things. Amen.